Friends, you will never fully appreciate the gospel if you minimize who God is. He is the Lord. God is the King. Welcome to A Better Word with Dr. Nick Gatsky, Senior Pastor of Old North Church in Canfield, Ohio. I'm your host, Brian Dolan. And today we launch into a brand new series called Two Ways to Live with the first part of a message titled The King and the Rebellion. All right, Pastor, two ways to live. What kind of series are we getting into here? You know, Brian, in a world where people think there are many different ways to live and all of those ways are equally valid, this series highlights the fact that as it relates to our relationship to God in this world, there are only two ways to live. There's not five, there's not 10, there's not many. There are only two. And we go about explaining what those two ways are. It's increasingly difficult, I think, in today's society to even present that message because it sounds so overly simplistic. Yeah. So are you going to be taking us through a way that will help us respond to the way culture is dealing with ways to live? Yeah. Our goal is to highlight the gospel in six steps. And in those six steps, it's highlighted that there is the way to live, that is of our own accord and following our own desires. And there is a way to live that is under the rule and the reign of the king. And that's the framework for all the messages going forward. And so, of course, along the way, we're going to engage in culture. More importantly, we're going to paint the picture of scripture that highlights these two ways again and again with the hope that people understand the gospel better and can communicate that gospel to other people. And now you normally take us through a specific book of the Bible or chapter of a particular book, but you're not going to be doing that this time. Yeah. In this series, we are going to be moving around through this, a number of different scriptures in every sermon. And so it does have a little bit of a different flavor to it, but I think what it will accomplish is that it will show that these two ways that we're talking about really are biblical and they're biblical, not just in one or two places in the Bible. These are threads that go through the entirety of scripture And as a result, we should sit up, pay attention, and really think hard about how we are going to follow the Lord in this. And with that, we'll get to today's message from Pastor Nick Gatsky called The King and the Rebellion. Eight years ago, CNN reported on two atheists who wanted to rewrite the Ten Commandments. The article begins with the question, what if instead of climbing Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God... Moses instead turned around and asked the Israelites, hey guys, what do you think we should do? That was the idea behind the 10 non-commandments contest in which atheists were asked to offer modern alternatives to the famous Decalogue, a contest that offered $10,000 for some of the best ideas. It drew more than 2,800 submissions from 18 countries and 27 states. A team of 13 judges selected the 10 of the most sober and serious submissions, and they announced the winners, which were, to be quite honest, kind of a weird mix of statements about life and commandments (laughs) for not being commandments. The article goes on to summarize it this way. It says, there's nary a thou shalt among them. Nothing specifically about murder, stealing, or adultery. 
Although there is a version of the golden rule which presumably would cover those other crimes. If they lack faith in the divine, the atheist non-commandments display a robust faith in humankind. As if Silicon Valley had replaced Mount Sinai. Here are just four of the ten of the ten non-commandments. Number two, strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. Or number five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Or number nine, there is no right way to live. Except, of course, to believe this commandment. Number 10, leave the world a better place than you found it. But it doesn't say according to who. (laughs) You know, many in our culture will promote the idea or similar ideas to these 10 non-commandments. Many will promote the idea that there are many, many different ways to live that will all lead to the same level of happiness or fulfillment or eternal destiny. But friends, there are but two ways to live. There are two ways to live. Now that might sound a bit reductionistic. Some people will undoubtedly bristle at the dualistic nature of such a claim. But the message of the Bible, the revelation of God to humans, shows that with regard to how humans go through life and interact with God, there are two ways to live. And we could describe them with great nuance, or we could simply say the first way is to live your own way. (laughs) And the second way is to live God's way. And the gospel of the Lord Jesus explains to us the implications of living these two ways. And so today, and for the next number of weeks, we enter into a journey of exploring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and its individual parts. It's important to think about the individual parts of the gospel, because if you are missing some of those parts, you might not understand the whole gospel. Because there's a lot of confusion about what the core of this gospel message is in the world today. And even among us in the room, if I were to ask all of you to tell me what the gospel is, I would probably get a wide variety of nuances and different angles and different priorities and different types of answers. Maybe some of us feel like we know it very clearly. Others of us might feel like we have a little bit of fuzziness about how it all holds together. But the message of the Bible that's communicated in this gospel is a thread that is woven throughout its entirety. And it points to us that there's two ways to live. And we so desperately want you to understand it, to know it for yourself. We so desperately want you to be able to live it. (laughs) 
because in the truth of the gospel, you will have the most fulfilling life. I am 100% convinced. And we so desperately want you to be confident enough to talk about it with other people because there's a world around us that needs to know this good news. And so today we begin by exploring the gospel by looking at two simple truths from the Bible and directly applying it from a number of different passages. And the first truth, the first reality is this. God is the king. God is the king. From the very beginning of the world, God has been the ruler of the world. He is the ruler of all things in the world. He is the source of all things. The Bible tells us that the world was created ex nihilo, out of nothing. God is the source of life. And if he is the source, then it stands to reason that he is the ruler. If you make a batch of cookies at home and your kids come along and say, I'm going to take all those, you say, no, I'm the source of those cookies. I will tell you when you can have the cookies or not. On a much more grandiose level, God is the source of all things that we experience in this world, and therefore he is the ruler of all things. Psalm 33 illustrates this really well. If your Bible is open, look at it. The words will be on the screen behind me. The psalmist writes this about God. It says, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make a melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by his breath of his mouth, all of their host. He gathers waters of the sea as a heap and he puts it deep into the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood Firm. Let's make a few observations. As the psalmist writes, there is a posture and some actions of God's people that are driven by who God is and what God has done. And so if you break it down into three questions, what are those actions and that posture of the people? Who is God and what has God done? Well, the actions, taking the first question, we see in this psalm are shouting for joy, giving thanks, singing to him and playing music to him. Those are the actions of God's people when engaging him. And it's grounded in the realities of who he is and what he's done. And so who is he? 
Well, verses four and five tell us. He is the upright, faithful God who loves righteousness and justice and spreads his love through the world. That's a pretty comprehensive statement of many of the attributes of God. It's who he is. Upright, faithful God who loves righteousness and justice and spreads his love through the world. That's who God is. That's what he's like. And what has he done? Well, verses 6 and 7 tell us. What has God done? By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He created. (laughs) What has God done? Well, he's done many things, but it starts with the fact that he created. He is loving and just and righteous and faithful and upright in all that he does in his creation. He is the Lord a divine title and name which means the self-existent one. And if he is the Lord, it means that he is the king. And verse 9 says, he merely spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Friends, words have power. (laughs) You know this. Sometimes your words have more power than you realize or you intend them to have. Sometimes, especially when you're dealing with your kids, you wish your words had more power than they actually do. Blaise Pascal once wrote, cold words freeze people. Hot words scorch them, and bitter words make them bitter, and wrathful words make them wrathful. Kind words also produce their image on men's souls, and a beautiful image it is. They smooth and quiet and comfort the hearer. Your words have tremendous power to affect change in your life, and in the life of other people around you. Words influence global treaties. Words initiate wars. Words can change an economy. And words can change a life. But with all of that power, none of your words are powerful enough to simply speak something into existence out of nothing. Only the king can do that. Think about that. Even begin to try to imagine what it would be like for you to breathe out a host of heavenly beings. That's exactly what God has done. Try to imagine the type of power that you would have if you could say but a word and something would materialize in front of you. You can't even begin to comprehend, but that is exactly what God has done. 
And so what is the posture of people who stand before such a powerful and holy God whose words merely cause things to come into being? Verse 9 tells us, we stand in awe and we fear him. God is the creator. God is the king. God is the king. God is the king. You know, this is key to understanding the gospel and how to live because most of us function with this really funny dynamic when it comes to viewing God. And you might just simplify it by saying a little God or a big God. (laughs) Most of us want a little God that we can minimize when we see something that we want that he forbids. (laughs) I want a little God in those moments. I don't want a big majestic king. But I do, most of us want a really big God when a pandemic hits (laughs) or a war is about to kick off. We want a powerful God then. We want a little God when life is comfortable because we don't want him to get in the way of that comfort, but we want a big God when personal crisis hits or when our self-sufficiency is revealed to be impotent. Friends, you will never fully appreciate the gospel if you minimize who God is and deny his transcendent being and his ruling over the world. God is the king. That's the picture of him in Revelation chapter four. Look at it with me. Starting in verse two, the apostle John writes that he was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Skipping down to verse nine. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, by the way, that's the king who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Worthy are you? For you created. God is the king. And that leads to the second reality that our biggest problem is rebellion against the king. (laughs) Many of us would say that our biggest problem in life is other people. (laughs) We'd be wrong. Many of us would say our biggest problem in life is not having enough money. We'd be wrong. 
Many of us in life would say our biggest problem in life is our sin. And you'd be right. But what is your sin? Sin is indicative of a posture or actions that point to something beyond themselves. Sins point to rebellion. The essential nature of sin is a rejection of God as our ruler. It's a rejection of him as the king. We see this from the very beginning. A desire for self-determination, which can also be described as a desire for self-rule or a desire for me to become the king of my little existence. Genesis chapter 3, Satan tempts Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Her desire for elevated status to know what God knew was a moment in which she said, not with her words, but with her actions, I want to be the king. (laughs) And in this sense, we can all relate to Eve because we all struggle with the notion or the temptation toward self-determination in life. It's the access point of a relationship with God and where sin enters in. We're tempted to rule our own lives and reject the rule of the king who is over us. The Bible is replete with example after example after example of how self-determination ultimately leads us toward a rejection of God and some wicked and terrible results. Think with me about the book of Judges. Some of you might be familiar with that book. Judges is a book in early Israeli history. The judges were military leaders who had some government roles as well. They were leaders of the people in Israel during that particular period. And we see account after account after account of the people in Israel, God's people, the people who were supposed to be set apart for a very particular purpose, the people who were supposed to be a reflection of the divine to the world. We see account after account of them just degrading morally, moving into further rebellion against God as their king. And you might remember the resounding theme, the theme that describes what this looks like. It says it in the capstone verse of Judges 21-25. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now that's interesting. They didn't try to do wrong these people, necessarily. They did what was right according to how they would order the world. They did what was right in their own eyes. And as a result, they individually said, well, I want to be the king. And so if I was the king, I would order the world this way. And so you get a bunch of little kings running around, all ordering the world in different types of ways. And what happens? The whole thing devolves into wickedness and degradation and horror for the people. Even in trying to do right, they did wrong. And the same is true for me. And the same is true for you. Sometimes even in trying to do right, 
we end up doing wrong. We make an evaluation to order the world in a certain way that we think is right. We can't see the results in the moment, but when they come, we realize how wrong we actually were. Fast forward with me to the book of 1 Samuel. We see another picture of God's people, Israel, wanting to be like the other nations of the world instead of following the rule of God as their king, they want a physical king. Thanks, Pastor Nick. That wraps up today's message on A Better Word. And Pastor Nick, you know, we're beginning a brand new calendar year and a lot of folks are thinking about the things they want to accomplish. And I bet you regularly have folks ask you, how do I know what God wants me to do? Yeah, it's one of the biggest questions in the Christian life. And it comes from a great place because by even asking the question, person is expressing a desire to follow what God would have them to do, right? Which in and of itself is amazing. But it becomes a little bit confusing sometimes if we don't know, uh, we don't have the right framework for how God engages us and speaks to us and leads us through this life. Because often, right, we decide what we want to do and then ask how we can find out if God agrees. Yes. Or sometimes we're confused about something that we think we have by way of an impression. Is that impression from God? I don't really know. Well, how do you work through all those things? Well, we have a resource for you this month for a gift to a better word. It's called Guidance and the Voice of God by Philip Jensen and Tony Payne. And it'll guide you through these very issues in your life. Would you like to get your hands on it? Get your gift in today. A donation can be made right now at abetterword.org. That's abetterword.org. And once you give your gift, we'll send you a copy of this book, Guidance and the Voice of God. A Better Word is a teaching ministry of and is sponsored by Old North Church of Canfield, Ohio.